Heavenly Father, uh, thank you, Father, for this season. Thank you for the joy and the many traditions that have marked this for us now every year of our lives in various ways. And we now take for granted some of that, Father, but we do thank you for it. It just adds joy to our life, Father. We know that you gave to the people of Israel feasts that would mark their year and teach them of you and uh, testify to your faithfulness and to your promises. But even in a simple sense, Father, they just gave joy and they gave something that uh, made people happy, gave them warmth in their heart and, and something that they could rejoice in. Father, we just thank you for that in our life in this way. Even if the day doesn't truly mark the day your son was born, even if the season itself has been commercialized and all the rest, Father, we know it to be something better and we can thank you for it. Uh, thank you, Father, as well for being a part of a body that cares so much about your word in a day and an age when that's not easy to find. So we thank you, Lord, for that. There are many who know you around the world who would yearn to even have a Bible, much less to sit and listen to teaching of it. And you've uh, blessed us with that privilege. We thank you, Father. Now let us make the most of it. Show us what you will tonight, Father. Open the word as only you can in our hearts, in our minds. Show us things that we need to understand to be more obedient to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing through the oracles against the enemies of Israel. That's the section we're in. This is the the third major section of Ezekiel, and it runs all the way to chapter 32. And if you remember from last week, this is the section in which the Lord explains to captive Israel how he plans to judge all those nations that had been their longtime enemies. Uh, It was to help balance the scales, if you will, in the mind of Israel. Because here they were now suffering under their own judgment in Babylon for their sin. And therefore it's important for the Lord to explain to his people how Israel's enemies would also see their fate in like manner. That is to say God wasn't being one-handed here. He was being even-handed. His people had their consequences, but so did the enemies of God's people. And so... The nations that came against Israel could not suppose that God was dealing only with his people this way. They would have their turn. And what we see in this section are a series of prophecies in which Ezekiel addresses seven of the eleven historical enemies of Israel. Most of those prophecies uh, are going to be fulfilled in Ezekiel's day or soon thereafter or in the, let's say, in the first couple of centuries, three to four centuries after. But some of these events are not fulfilled until the time of the kingdom, until things even distant future from us. One way in which these prophecies get fulfilled is through the same enemy that brought Israel into captivity, that is through Babylon. So Babylon features prominently throughout all of these prophecies, even though that nation itself is not one of the seven nations that are receiving these oracles in in Ezekiel's book. Um, But the events that deal with future things, that is, things that come in the kingdom, they obviously don't deal with this Babylon. They don't deal with any earthly nation. They have to do with God himself, that the full measure of his wrath in some cases awaits for that day when God will set up a kingdom on earth. And in that day, these nations will serve as a testimony, even then, of their opposition to God's people and how God judged them for that. And as we saw last week, briefly, Some of these judgments also include Israel's ultimate enemy, Satan himself. 
We saw a little of that last week with the demonic realm being uh, uh, sort of uh, implied in the judgment of one of the places we studied. And next time we meet, we'll be looking at this ultimate enemy in great detail. But that waits for next time. Tonight, uh, we move into chapters 26 and 27. Last week in 25, we studied four of the seven enemies of Israel and what God said would happen to them. Those were Ammon, Moab, uh, Edom, and Philistia. This week we get to the fifth of the seven, and this one, Tyre, consumes the next three chapters all its own. So let's begin. Ezekiel 26, verse 1. He says, Now, in the eleventh year, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the peoples is broken. It is open to me. I shall be filled. And now that she is laid waste... Um, awkward pause right there. I'm stopping because we're mid-sentence, I know. But I want to introduce Tyre to you before we look at the judgments. Ezekiel says this prophecy comes to him in the 11th month of the 11th year, which means knowing that all of these dates are relative to the first one that he gave at the beginning of the book. That means this oracle came to Ezekiel two years into Nebuchadnezzar's three-year siege against Jerusalem. So if you remember, chapter 24 was the chapter in which we saw him announce the start of the siege to the people in exile. And then we said between the beginning of the siege and the end of the siege, he spends his time giving prophecies about all of Israel's enemies. Well, chapter 25 last week began that, in which he looked at those four nations. Now the second stage of those prophecies begins, and we have already gone two of the three years now into the siege. Three years is how long it took Nebuchadnezzar to get through the walls of of Jerusalem. Two of those years have passed. We're still waiting, obviously, for one more. And in the meantime, we get this prophecy. And it consists itself of seven pieces. And four of those pieces are in this chapter. The other three come in the next two chapters. Don't worry about the counting too much. But just so you know, there is some structure here. Altogether, though, they promise a coming judgment for the people of Tyre because they rejoiced at Jerusalem's fall. That's the introduction that I just read. Verse 2, the Lord says, The city saw Jerusalem fall. And they saw it as an opportunity. And that's what all ruthless, business-minded people think when they see things change, right? Uh, uh, Tragedies are opportunity. In the ruins of Judah, they saw an opportunity for Tyre because they were a competitor of Judah. And in that sense, Judah just went out of business, leaving Tyre more of the market. Tyre was the undisputed trading power over the sea. But Judah controlled valuable land routes into the east. And so they were competitors for how trade moved in and out of this region, whether by sea or by land. But now, as we read in verse 2, the Babylonians are saying that the uh, breaking of Jerusalem means a gateway has opened for Tyre, meaning a gateway for them to trade with the east with no competition. They have both the land route now and the sea route. Uh, elsewhere in the scriptures and prophets of Amos and Joel, you see a record that Tyre profited from this event in another way. They uh, assisted or participated in the selling of Jewish slaves that came up out of the Babylonian attack. So they sold those slaves to Greeks and to Edomites. So what follows from this opening are a series of prophecies against the Tyrians, including a few interesting characters coming in those Uh, Later chapters we'll look at next time. Now, let's start with the basics. The name Tyre, it means rock. 
And Tyre was the most impressive city among the Phoenician cities that occupied the coastline of the Mediterranean. Primarily today, that would be the region of Lebanon, though it stretched a little bit down into what is northern Israel today. You don't talk much about Tyre today. We don't talk much about Phoenicians today, unless you're a student of ancient history, I guess. But in Ezekiel's day, Tyre was all the talk. Tyre was it. Tyre was the place. The prophecies against Tyre run three chapters, which reflects its importance in the ancient world. Tyre had this very unique geography, which is also reflected in these oracles. It was located on the coast of present-day Lebanon, like I said, just north of the Israeli border. If you're with me in Israel, and we go to a place that's right on the Lebanese border, these grottos that are, remember the grottos, Sharon, where you can see the water come up through the caves? If you could have looked around the other side of those grottos down the coastline, we would have seen Tyre jutting out, almost like Joppa does just south of that location on the Israeli side. It's about 35 miles from the Sea of Galilee as the bird flies. So it's not very far from Israel. Part of the city was on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast, and it was known as Old Tyre. But the main part of the city, the important part of the city, was located one kilometer offshore on this rocky outcropping, an island that sat just off the shore of the coast. That island had two excellent harbors. In fact, the northern harbor, they had a northern and southern harbor. The northern harbor was arguably the best harbor in the Med. Better than anything in Greece, better than anything in Italy. It was the prime spot because of currents and, and depth and so on. As a result, Tyre was the center of a great commercial and colonial empire uh, for many, many centuries in the ancient times. From their port, that city oversaw the movement of trade throughout the ancient world, and they facilitated the conquest of a lot of peoples as a result. Nations could come to Tyre and purchase almost anything imaginable, any commodity, including raw materials, basic commodities, luxury goods, even mercenary armies were for sale through Tyre. Ironically, the remnant of Israel that returns from this captivity that we're now studying the ones that come after Cyrus of Persia release those of Israel who want to come back and rebuild their temple. You know that story from Ezra and Nehemiah. If you remember, and particularly if you read the, the prophet Haggai, when they come back, they have to build that temple, and they're given money from Cyrus. Part of what Cyrus is convicted to do by God is to equip the people of God with the resources they need to do the temple building. But those resources are in the form of money, primarily, uh, valuable things they can trade. When they get down to the land, there's nothing there. They have to buy the raw goods. They buy them from Tyre. You see this in Ezra 3.7. It says, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. I mean, everything went through Tyre. Tyre was it. By the way, ironically, in Haggai later, God is mad at the people of Israel because all those things they bought, they stopped building the temple and started using those materials to uh, build their own homes instead of using them for the temple. Anyway, it's par for the course with Israel. But anyway, um, as a result of their power center, they were naturally a very wealthy city. I mean, that's probably to be expected. They had stunning architecture. Uh, they had a wealthy business class. They sat in this perfect location from which to profit from the movement of goods across the known world at that time. And so in modern terms, you need to think of this city in a, in a way like New York City or Singapore or Hong Kong. They were, they were it. Everything moved through them. And therefore, they had to protect their interests. So the island was heavily fortified. It was nearly impenetrable. As a result, the Israelites never conquered Tyre, although that land was part of what was given to Asher. 
Um, and throughout the centuries that followed, the Tyrians were a thorn in Israel's side, but not so much as a warring party, a, an enemy that attacked, more as a competitor, more as a, an economic enemy. They always sought to profit at Israel's expense. They tried to dominate trade. They tried to make it difficult for Israel to buy goods. Um, they were treacherous against Israel. This is a long history. Now, moving into Ezekiel's day. In Ezekiel's day, Tyre remained independent. But Babylon was the reigning superpower. They were intent on world domination. And Tyre was just too desirable to ignore if you're Nebuchadnezzar. And so the Lord says, as we move into the text now, that Nebuchadnezzar will set his sights on defeating the island stronghold. Verse 3, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she will become spoil for the nations. Also, her daughters who are on the mainland will be slain by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. Now, this just gets us started, but it begins to set up what God is saying and why. The Lord says, I'm going to bring many nations against Tyre in waves, he says, drawing on the image of the ocean to, I guess, mock Tyrion's dominance of the sea. Now, he says there's going to be many nations, and they come in waves. And what he's talking about now are various world powers conquering the island, one after another, like waves rolling in. Each of them is going to hold the island for some period of history until the power of that nation begins to wane. And then, in most cases, Tyre reasserts its independence for a period of time until that just that's like somebody just going into the bowling alley and putting the pins right back up again. So the next power can come in and knock them down again. And so it is. Another power rises, reconquers the island, and there we go again. So first we're going to have Babylon. He actually names them next in verse 7. After Babylon, as you might know just historically, come the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, later the Ottomans. And the Ottomans finally put an end to Tyre as a world power. I mean, it's occupied, but it doesn't matter anymore after that. That's about the 14th century. The Greeks had the most interesting story associated with this. Alexander the Great was the very first one to breach the walls of the city. When Alexander's army arrived in 332 B.C., they came up in their ships looking at walls that stood 150 feet coming straight out of the ocean all around this island. 150 feet up, straight out of water. And there was literally no way to breach them. You couldn't stabilize a platform in that condition, have enough artillery, have enough men in position to breach or to do any damage before you'd be attacked from above and you couldn't survive it. So in order, but that didn't stop Alexander. So in order to breach the walls or to get into the city, he built a one kilometer long earthen causeway from the coast to the island. He built an earth road in the sea so that he could bring his artillery up to the island. Now, in the end, he could not connect all the way to the island. As he got closer, he got attacked, and they couldn't finish the building. Plus, it got deeper right at the point of the island. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, Tyrrhenians were really good at what they did. They sent divers out to uh, cut the lines of ships that were anchored there, and they, they had a, it, was a, it was a back and forth for quite some time as they tried to counteract the attack. So Alexander positioned his artillery at the end of the causeway as far as it went, which was close enough now that they could bombard the city from that location. As they did that, they were able to weaken the defenses. Meanwhile, because of his earlier victories in Egypt and in other parts of the Med, he had 
a massive fleet of ships, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ships, the best in the world at the time. He brought that entire naval fleet against the island so that nothing could get to them or out. They could, he, he completely controlled the water around it. And then he had floating battering rams brought up to the sides of the wall in various places. Now with the city under attack, he could do his work more easily without worry of counterattack. And as he tested the walls with these uh, battering rams, he found a wall that he could breach, and his army at that point came in and he easily took the city at that point. But because of the length and the difficulty of all of that, he was a little upset. And so... He took, oh, he took out his revenge on the people of Tyre. Over 6,000 soldiers died in the city of Tyre. 2,000 Tyrenians were crucified on the beach. And 30,000 were sold as slaves, according to ancient historians. Now, during the centuries, a little footnote here, during the centuries that followed, the causeway grew. Uh, ocean tides deposited silt along the southern side of that causeway, and eventually it filled the port on the southern side. So now there's only one port there when there used to be two. But eventually that silting resulted in the island being connected to the land by the causeway. Today, if you were to look at it on Google as a map, I have a picture here, it doesn't look like there was ever anything but one jut of land there. It's a feature of the coastline now. It's no longer an island. And it's all built on. And, and, but that used to be an island of a kilometer from the, from the coastline. But thanks to Alexander the Great, it's no longer that way. So there's your little footnote of history. Anyway, verse 4. The Lord promises in a general way... <laughs> that all of this is going to happen, that he will bring down Tyre's walls and their defensive towers, and he will scrape the city clean, making her as barren as a rock, remembering that the name of the city is Rock. It's more irony here to mock them. Uh, He's describing, in a sense, the culminating effect of what Babylon did, later what Alexander the Great does, and so on, and the subsequent destruction of the city. In verse 5, he says he does this in contrast to its illustrious past, Tyre would now be known as a place where you just lay out fishing nets. Fishermen would come up to that place because it was convenient, take their fishing nets out of the boats, and lay it on the ground to dry them in the sun. That's as much importance as the land would have at a point in history. Uh, He says it will have become spoil for other nations, which again is irony because this used to be the place that profited from distributing the world's spoil. Furthermore, the daughters of Tyre, he says, the mainland towns, that's what he means by daughters, not the literal women, But he's talking about towns on the mainland that were dependent on Tyre proper for their own existence. Those towns on the the mainland would be attacked as well. Okay, so that's just merely an overview of what's coming. So now you get into a detailed uh, description of the first wave, which came from Babylon, of course. Verse 7, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a great army. He will slay your daughters on the mainland with the sword, and he will make siege walls against you, cast up a ramp against you, and raise up a a large shield against you. The blow of his battering rams he will direct against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the multitude of his horses, the dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that is breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise, break down your walls, and destroy your pleasant homes or houses, and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. So I will silence the sound of your songs, and the sound of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock, 
You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord God. All right, so this is that first of the waves he talked about, Babylon. This happens immediately after the siege of Jerusalem. And the timing here is of of interest, which is partly why it's important to know the date of this chapter. Uh, if, If you remember, we said at the outset, this oracle comes one year before the siege ends, two years into the three year siege. So in one year after this is being given, Jerusalem will fall. Nebuchadnezzar will do what he does in the city. And as he leaves uh, in that same year, 586 B.C., his great army, as he comes back northward, goes directly to the coastal city of Old Tyre. He doesn't go home. This is his next target. And there he begins his attack. And the Lord says, Nebuchadnezzar will make siege walls and ramps and breach the walls and destroy the defensive towers. And that huge numbers of horses will kick up so much dust that it coats the city and the people. And the walls will shake at the sound of the cavalry and uh, trample the people down. And all the riches will be hauled off. And, you know, if you've seen a Hollywood movie, you kind of know what it probably looked like, right? Just mayhem. Not to diminish it, but you get the point. Notice in verse 12, the Lord says that after the city's destruction, the rubble will be thrown into the sea. Which just sounds like, you know, adding insult to injury. But when you think about it for a minute, that's a very strange thing. First of all, that's very labor-intensive. Secondly, under most circumstances, an invading army is not going to take the time to do something like that, which is entirely useless to them. In fact, it actually could be counterproductive if some of that material would be of use to rebuild, right? So they're not going to go to this trouble unless there's some good reason. Why is this going to happen? Well, the Lord fulfills this promise through Alexander the Great, who used that rubble to construct his causeway. Interesting. Also notice back in verse 6, If you're listening to this description and you're thinking, wait a minute, Steve, I thought you said that Alexander was the first one to go through the walls. Well, notice in verse 6, all of this destruction is against Tyre's daughters on the mainland. Nebuchadnezzar never breached the walls of the city on the island proper. Instead, he blockaded it for 13 years. For 13 years, his ship stayed in place and didn't allow anything in or out of that city, putting a stop to the city's commerce. Eventually, the city sued for peace. It's a remarkable thing that they could hold out for 13 years. It shows you how self-sustaining they were with what they had on the island. In 573 B.C., 13 years later, the island surrendered, and as a result, they became a vassal of Babylon, and they had to pay tribute tax to Nebuchadnezzar thereafter, which was basically the same situation that Judah found themselves in after they were attacked the first time. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's interest was not in destruction per se. It was in domination. But after, Neb- after Judah refused to play nice, then they got destroyed. But here he does what he normally does, and he just asks them to be a vassal. Notice the Lord also says, those coastal towns will never be built again. Now that statement in Hebrew probably could be better translated, will not be built up again. In other words, there were people who came back and lived in those locations. God is not saying it will be vacant, but he's saying it will never get back to the same level of prominence again. And that is historically accurate. All the settlements that came back to the mainland after Babylon's uh, destruction were small. They were insignificant compared to the original settlements that were there. Certainly there weren't walls and towers there again like there had been. And now the Lord explains how that destruction is going to impact Tyre, specifically their customers. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Shall not the coastlands shake at the sound of your fall when the wounded groan, when the slaughter occurs in your midst? Then all the princes of the sea will go down from their thrones, remove their robes, and strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble every moment, and be appalled at you. They will take up a lamentation over you and say to you, 
How you have perished, O inhabited one, from the seas, O renowned city, which was mighty on the sea, she and her inhabitants who imposed her terror on all her inhabitants. Now the coastlands will tremble on the day of your fall. Yes, the coastlands which are by the sea will be terrified at your passing. So, so much of the ancient world depended on the material, that the trade that flowed through Tyre, that seeing this trading center destroyed was just so much that it rocked the world of every other coastal power. Uh, many settlements around the Mediterranean were actually vassals of Tyre at this time. They owed their existence to Tyre. They paid for protection from Tyre. Um, remember, Tyrians were Phoenicians, and Phoenicians were hands down the best seagoing people in the world at that time. They had sailed and explored the, the Mediterranean before anyone else had, and as a result, they had settled many parts of it. And so, as a result, uh, seeing their home country, if you will, their benefactor, their source of power brought low was unimaginable. From the point of view of the rest of the world, if Tyre could be defeated, who was safe? Moreover, the trade that Tyre uh, provided for the world was what the world's rich and powerful depended on for their own base of power. Babylon's rise to dominance, there was a groundbreaking change in ancient times. So Nebuchadnezzar's defeat of Tyre was proof to the world that things were changing, which makes sense if you know Daniel. What God prophesied through Daniel was the rise of these strange and more and powerful world nations that never had precedent before, but they marked a new age that would continue all the way until the second coming of Christ in various forms. The world had begun to think that Tyre was unassailable. Now that had been proven wrong, and they're astonished at it. And this whole scene is kind of ironic because... Uh, Tyre's gloating over Jerusalem's fall was the whole cause for this to take place in the first place. Now the world is astonished at the fall of Tyre as a result of God's judgment. But it's also ironic in another way, a very important way, prophetic way. In the future, in tribulation, the time that we know is still ahead of us, a similar set of circumstances will take place, only in complete reverse. Babylon will be the victim of God's judgment and yet the world will react in exactly the same way to their fall. Let me read you a passage out of Revelation 18. Uh, Revelation 18.1. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Jump to verse 7. To the degree that she glorified herself, listen to the parallels with Tyre. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come. Pestilence and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. All the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you. 
And all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. You see a lot of parallels there, some of which you'll be able to make even later tonight because of things we will see later. But the general gist is a merchant paradise trading by the sea that has been taken down and everybody feels the, the pain of it themselves. All right, that's what's happened in the case of Tyre because of what Babylon did. There's a more fundamental aspect, though, in this judgment that comes out in that account as well as in the one we're studying in Tyre. And that is that the world has ultimately always put its trust in riches, right? in the world, in, in the rewards of this world. And I don't just mean that they desire it, because every human being desires the things of this world. Even believers desire the nice things of this world. And that's not necessarily a problem in and of itself. We're not supposed to pretend we don't like things that we do like. The difference is that the unbelieving world puts trust in the economy of this world, such that all purpose and meaning in life, along with security and stability, depends on the continuation of that system and assumes as much. You know, it, it assumes static existence of these things. And no one ever contemplates the end of it. Not in a serious way. In fact, the world mocks the idea of any kind of real end. Anyone wants to talk about the end of the world or mention things that the Bible has to say, they just see it as nothing but scare tactics. And when this comes, when any kind of end comes, even on a small scale, you see how much they're dependent on the world's riches, and to say it differently, on the world's reward system, the world's economy, you see how dependent they are on it when even on a small scale it gets disrupted. Remember when the Twin Towers fell in New York? And for a time anyway, people felt like it was the end of normal life. I remember being at work one day when that happened. I remember people at work didn't know whether to go home or stay at their workplace. I'm like, well, why did that event now to say, you know, to say you can't figure out what to do with the rest of your day? I know it's tragic and dramatic, but you still have a job, you still have a house. You still, what, what is it about this that just made your world go to part? People were speechless. They couldn't understand where to go next and what was going to happen. And it felt as if the world was ending because two buildings fell halfway across the country. Not to minimize it, but to simply illustrate that that's a minor event compared to what we're talking about here, where whole cities are gone, whole nations of people turn, go away. Or to, to say even more, what happens in tribulation? Right, which has no comparison. So it just reveals how much humanity is depending on the facade of this world and how easily it can crumble, and yet how surprised they are when it does. It's sort of an oxymoronic situation. It's self-evidently fragile, and Scripture makes it clear it's going away, and yet the world lives as if there's no potential for that. No potential for that. And all the, it's all the more tragic when Christians slip into that lifestyle because it's so unnecessary for us. When you've placed your trust on eternal things found only in Christ, then crumbling 
uh, facades don't alarm you as much. I mean, I'm not saying you won't be affected if you see a great terrorist act take place. We all have human emotions. But it doesn't leave your world shaken. It may leave your day uh, of, you know, shaken in the sense that you're not feeling good about what you saw, but you're not worried about the future in the, in the general sense. And in fact, in a, in a kind of odd way, as things get worse, there's more cause for joy for the Christian because it means the world's getting closer to the end. The, the closer the world is to total destruction, the closer we are to the kingdom. So you know that nothing that comes upon the world will disturb the promises you have in Christ and the future that comes with those promises. And even if such things should take your earthly life, that's a win-win too. For anyone who understands what comes next, that's a win-win. The eternal perspective in that regard is priceless. It becomes even more invaluable when you see how the world responds in panic to these events. And this is an example, in Tyre's case, this is an example on a small scale of what the tribulation does on a large scale and reminds us all the more about why what we have is so precious. I I will tell you that a lot of Christians, I think, lose sight of the value of what they have. They sort of get into everyday life and what we know we have in Christ becomes something you care about on Sundays and the rest of the week you're kind of just thinking about your life. And I guess I can understand that. But if you do that, you're jettisoning the most powerful and important thing you've been given by your faith, which is to not have to care about this world. Not in the way the world cares about itself. Speaking of eternal things, notice how the Lord ends this part of his judgment against the city in verse 19. He says, For thus says the Lord God, When I make you a desolate city, like the cities which are not inhabited, when I bring up the deep over you and the great waters cover you, then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of old, and I will make you dwell in the lower parts of the earth, like the ancient waste places, with those who go down to the pit, so that you will not be inhabited, and I will set glory in the land of the living. I will bring terrors on you, and you will be no more. Though you will be sought, you will never be found again, declares the Lord God. So, He begins in that little passage speaking of the city's demise, but he uses language, as you notice, that connects the city's end with the final destiny of its inhabitants. The Lord connects two images there. Metaphorically, he talks about the city sinking into the sea. Now, it didn't actually do that. It's still there. At least the land is. But he does that metaphorically so as to connect their fate with the fate of those who, he says, descend into the pit, which is a description of Sheol. So he says the city will be desolate, covered over by the sea, as I said, not literally what happened, but metaphorically you can say it was wiped clean as if it was covered by the sea. Then in verse 20 he says the people of the sea will likewise, I'm sorry, the the people of Tyre will likewise go down in the water, so to speak. Now he's referring here to the pit, as he calls it. The pit is one of several names that the Bible uses to describe a literal place that is in the depths of the earth, even as we speak. If you could tunnel down below your feet deeply enough, you would find it. It's at the center of the earth, the scripture says. The name of this place that is in the center of the earth is called Sheol in the Old Testament, prior to Christ. And prior to Christ's coming, it was the holding place for the souls of every human being, believer or unbeliever, who died. Jesus gives us the clearest explanation of this in Luke 16 when he tells the story of of the rich man and Lazarus. And in that account, we learn that Sheol, this place, again, it's in the depths of the earth, consisted of two parts, one part called Hades, one part called Abraham's bosom. Hades is the place we commonly call hell. It's a temporary holding place for the souls of unbelievers. And as Jesus described it in Luke 16, it's an incredibly hot place of torment. 
and there is no relief for those who are waiting there. Uh, I don't think it's coincidence that lava is really hot and it comes out from out of the ground. I mean, I'm not trying to connect these things any more than necessary, but the Bible's very consistent in what it says about that place, and geology confirms that. The deeper you go in the earth, the hotter it gets, hot enough to melt rock. One day, the scripture says, those that are in this place will receive their final judgment. They'll be resurrected into bodies, physical bodies again, where they're judged before Christ, and then because of their sins, without the covering of Christ's atoning blood, they will be judged as due judgment in the eternal lake of fire. So that will be their final and permanent abode. The other side of that place that's down below our feet is called Abraham's bosom, and it is currently empty. But prior to the coming of Christ, that was the place for the souls of those who died in faith. That's a place of comfort, uh, as opposed to the other side. Those souls could not go directly to God in the presence of God when they originally died in history, because the sacrifice for their sin had not yet been made by Christ on the cross. So they could not enter before him, for their sins had not yet been paid for. Yet they were righteous by faith, and therefore they could not be subjected to the judgment either. So God made a place for them where he could hold them until the time of Messiah. So like the living world above, the souls of the believers who were in Sheol were awaiting Messiah. And when he came... We're told he descended down there for three days, and Paul says in Ephesians that when he left, he set free the captives that were there. That is, he took with him the souls of the believers on the side of Abraham's bosom, who were waiting for him. Today they are with Christ in the throne room. Having been set free, they they went up there with him after the resurrection. Now, since that moment, anyone who dies who's in faith goes directly into the presence of the Lord, for there's no need for that temporary holding place anymore. We're on this side of the resurrection as opposed to them. They were on the front side, we're on the back side, so we don't need that extra stopping point. So today in Sheol, it's only Hades. So those two terms are basically interchangeable now, which is why we don't hear a lot about Sheol in the New Testament. All you hear about is hell or Hades, because that's the only working part of the space anymore. And it's that side of Sheol that's being called the pit here. The side that is obviously not good, the side that is Hades. Notice in verse 20, the description of this place fits the description of what I just gave you in summary out of Luke 16. A place in the lower parts of the earth. There's that uh, description again. A place for people of old, that is of the Old Testament time, the sinners of old. A place of terror where people are never seen again. So the reality of those who place their trust in the best that this world offers is that in the end, they received the very worst of this physical earth, the hot part in the center. That passage is a classic example also of how the Lord uses the sea as a metaphor for the resting place of dead. In the Bible, the sea is is commonly used this way. Here and many other places, Job, the Psalms, uh, even in uh, Genesis, there's places in which the sea itself is used metaphorically to refer to a deep, dark, bottomless place of judgment, specifically here the pit or Sheol. And that tells you why the sea exists as a feature on this physical earth and yet does not exist as a feature on the new heavens and new earth. Because God put the sea on this earth now in part so that he would have it available as a metaphor from which to draw in discussing things that are hard to understand otherwise, like the idea of a deep place that you descend into for judgment. So the sea became a useful metaphor, which he planned it to be. But in the new heavens and new earth, we're told there's no sin, there's no death, there's no judgment. And therefore, there is no need for a metaphor 
of such things. And so we're told the new heavens and new earth do not have sea. Similarly, there's no dark, which is a metaphor for sin or for evil. There's, there's things missing intentionally because there's no need for them, as the metaphors themselves have no meaning. We're now moving into chapter 27. I'm not going to complete it tonight. We're going to get about two-thirds or so through it. This chapter is a really interesting one because it's a mix of prose and poetry coming together as a lamentation or as a song sung for the dead. And it's remarkable primarily because of its precise imagery, both of the city and of the history of those who profited from the city. In fact, the details in this chapter are so unique, I've read that it's unparalleled in the history of ancient literature. It's the most detailed, accurate description of an ancient city in all literature from ancient times. To understand it properly, uh, you really have to consult the Table of Nations in Genesis 10, and prophecies of Isaiah 13 and 14, and Revelation 18, which we just looked at. I'll kind of move that into the study as we go. I'm not going to do a lot of jumping around, so we'll just introduce those ideas as we need them. In the first 24 verses, uh, which is what we'll do tonight, we are going to look at a recounting of how Tyre gained its splendor and distinction. And then the final 10 verses are a description of that destruction of splendor. And he does all of it using another metaphor of a ship. So he compares the city itself to one of its grand ships and what that ship achieved, what it did in trading and and bringing wealth to the city in the first part, and then the second part, how the ship goes down is the destruction. So we'll look at the first part tonight. Verse 1. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, take up a lamentation over Tyre, and say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrance to the sea, merchants of the peoples to many coastlands, Thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders have perfected your beauty. They have made all of your planks of fir trees from Senir. They have taken a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks from Bashan they have made your oars. With ivory they have inlaid your deck of boxwood from the coastlands of Cyprus. Your sail was of fine embroidered linen from Egypt, so it became your distinguishing mark. Your awning was blue and purple from the coastlands of Elisha. The inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your rowers. Your wise men, O Tyre, were aboard. They were your pilots. The elders of Gabal and her wise men were with you repairing your seams. All the ships of the sea and their sailors were with you in order to deal in your merchandise. All right, we'll stop there. So what God has asked Ezekiel to do, basically, is eulogize Tyre. That's what a lament was, in effect. A lament was a, uh, a kind of... Uh, remembrance of somebody, a, a mourning over somebody's loss, a recounting of them and their death. Uh, you remember now I said Ezekiel's written this whole thing about a year before the beginning of the attacks against Tyre, before the events against the city. And if, for that matter, he's writing it about 15 years before the conclusion of those attacks. All right. So this is a eulogy directed to those in Tyre who dwell in the city. And so the, the audience of the lamentation were the present-day inhabitants who were soon to be the subjects of the lamentation themselves. be like reading a eulogy to someone before they died. So it serves as a, as a warning as well. And it begins where all sin begins. Pride. So the city was prideful over its accomplishments. And it was said to think of itself, we're perfect in beauty. Those high walls that descended into the sea gave it great confidence. And it said, our builders have made us perfect and and made us beautiful. All right, so its first mistake was crediting itself with its strength, with its accomplishments. Or as as Paul might say, they worshiped the creature instead of the creator. 
in, in a general sense, right? Their builders were their gods. Their accomplishments were their gods. Their security was their walls. And in verse 4, the Lord begins to show the error of that logic, but he does it very subtly. Verse 4, the Lord begins to describe the city as if it were a ship on the high seas. Now that, you, know, you notice all the nautical references in these two chapters, and that's because of the nature of the Phoenician culture. They were seagoing people. So he's drawing on their own metaphors, their, their own lifestyle. And he says the city saw itself like one of those tall stately ships that did the trading with a tall mast. Now Phoenicians weren't just world-class sailors, they were world-class shipbuilders as well. The largest of their trading ships had a crew of over 200 on the ship and up to three banks of oars coming out of the side of the ship. And this is ancient time you know, uh, shipbuilding and yet uh, it would rival anything we could do today with the same materials, with wood. They made the ships from the very best materials. So they got fur from Sinir, which is present-day Mount Hermon. Uh, the sides of the ship, they used cedar from Lebanon, which was you know, world-renowned. Some of the best wood in the world. Oaks of Bashan were the oars. Then you had boxwood for the planking of the decks. And then they had ivory inlaid in the boxwood on the decks. I mean, people were just walking on it, on a ship. Uh, the sails, I mean, well, a sail is just a piece of cloth, right? Just any old sail can do. No, they had finely embroidered linen from Egypt. I mean, that was so extravagant that it, made, it became a mark of the realm. It was what they were known for. I mean, imagine buying 800-count sheets, enough of them to make a sail on a ship that size. That's what these people were doing. Moreover, the Tyrrhenians had the money to hire the very best crews in the world, men from Sidon and Arvad. Now, Sidonians and uh, men of Arvad, they're fellow Phoenicians. So Phoenicians were unequaled in their seamanship. They produced the best sailors in the world, the strongest rowers in the world. So here's, it's, it's saying they just got the, the, the Olympic team to be their, their ship crew. And pilots in Phoenician culture were the best in the world as well. They were trained to navigate in any water. Uh, you, if you wanted to get somewhere and you didn't want to go aground, you got a Phoenician pilot. Then it says they also sailed with a bunch of women, artisans, who were ready at a moment's notice to repair anything on the ship that needed to be done, whether it was the stitching on the, on the sails, or perhaps they had men who could do other kinds of work, or women that could do other kinds of work. The point is, they, had this, they, had, they, they were never going to not have exactly what they wanted. Life was just a perfect little bubble on this ship. This is a description of a world power, at the height of its power, displaying conspicuous wealth. It's an indication of how special Tyre was in the world at this time. And you could make comparisons. I mean, maybe it's like uh, the United States at the height of its power when it was unchallenged, unrivaled. Maybe it's like the, 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 the wealth of some of the nations we see now that sort of takes center stage, wealth that the rest of the world can only dream about. A better example today might be an Arab oil country or a business or trading centers like Singapore or Hong Kong or Dubai. And it's in that same sense Tyre was the magnet of wealth in their day. Regardless of your example, what you're seeing is the same kind of prideful arrogance, that the wealth of Tyre had deceived its residents into thinking they were the cause of their own success. Now, at first, that statement may actually sound sensible to you, too. Well, who else would you credit with their success? Oh, I know, Steve, you're going to say, God, God's always in charge of what... Yeah, I know, but, but even on a more basic level, even on a more practical level, it's self-deception. They were explaining their circumstances, in other words, as the natural result of their superiority as human beings, such that if you dropped these people on any other patch of earth, the same thing would have happened. From God's point of view, that's offensive because it takes credit 
for God's planning in positioning people where he does and assigning them what he assigned them. The Tyrrhenians were merely the beneficiaries of a life that God decided to give them in his plan for history. Much like we benefit from being placed in this country at this time in history and at this time and place of our life. But had you been born under different circumstances? Had you been placed in some part of the world that did not have the advantages you have here? Uh, Don't think that your intellect and pulling yourself up from your bootstraps, so to speak, would have brought you to the same place you are now. That's just not realistic. Uh, We have what we have by the testimony uh, of Scripture, by the Lord's grace. And to make that point, the Lord begins to remind Tyre of how their success was connected to all the other people groups of the earth using names and places that evoke Genesis 10, the table of nations chapter in Genesis, which follows after the scattering of languages, the confusing of language and the scattering of peoples. So as we look at that connection, as we consider that connection, what we're reminded of is God's scattering of people happened according to his purpose and desire, which negates Tyre's pride in thinking they obtained their own place in the world. So let's look at each of these people. Now this list is not intended to be studied, in my opinion, kind of in each verse deeply. It's meant to be seen at a higher level, so we're going to move through it like that. But you'll see it, I think, very clearly as we do. All right. So verses 10 and 11, I'm going to read a, a verse or two at a time or a section at a time, and then we're going to just jump through them. Verses 10 and 11. Persia and Lud and Put were in your army, your men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They set forth your splendor. The sons of Arvad and your army were on your walls all around, and the Gamadim were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They perfected your beauty. So Tyre didn't keep a standing army. Tyre was not a big place. They didn't have a lot of land. And soldiers were not considered part of the social elite or powerful. They were tools. All right. Uh, you see a similar mindset, I think, in some of the Arab nations today that have a lot of money. They bring in uh, Filipinos, Indians, others who need the work and are willing to do it. And they, 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 that's all beneath them. And soldiers for Tyre had a similar status. So to protect itself, they hired mercenary armies. They could attract fighting men from all around because they paid well. And the city had really good defenses, so you didn't fear too much for yourself if you were on their side. Verse 10, it says they had men from as far away as Persia, which is modern-day Iran, Lud, which is eastern Turkey, Put, which in this context could be Libya or could be another African people. Likewise, he says, sons of Arvad and and Gamadin guarded the city walls. They're also from, from places far. So you have these great distances these men traveled, which would indicate how selective Tyre could be in hiring their soldiers. I mean, if you can draw people from that far around, you only have to take the best, right? It also illustrates, though, as you saw, that Tyre's success, their beauty, as they said, it depended heavily on people who were not Tyrian. Notice in verse 11, he says, those men perfected Tyre's beauty. So that's just the first salvo. Then he turns to those who made Tyre rich, which is really the source of their power, their their wealth. And he begins with those who bought from Tyre. Verse 12, he says, Tarshish was your customer because of the abundance of all kinds of wealth, with silver, iron, tin, and lead. They paid for your wares. Javan, Tubal, and Meshach, they were your traders. With the lives of men and vessels of bronze, they paid for your merchandise. Those from Beth, Togamah, gave horses and war horses and mules for your wares. The sons of Dadan were your traders. Many coastlands were your market. Ivory, tusks, and ebony, they brought as your payment. Aram was your customer because of the abundance of your goods. They paid for your wares with emeralds, purple, embroidered work, fine linen, coral, and rubies. 
Judah and the land of Israel, they were your traders. With the wheat of Minith, cakes, honey, oil, and balm, they paid for your merchandise. Damascus was your customer because of the abundance of your goods, because of the abundance of all kinds of wealth, because of the wine of Heblon and white wool. Vedon and Javan paid for your wares from Uzal. Wrought iron, cassia, and sweet cane were among your merchandise. Dadan traded with you in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar, they were your customers for lambs, rams, and goats. For these were your customers. The traders of Sheba and Ramah, they traded with you. They paid for your wares with the best of all kinds of spices, with all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Kenah, Eden, and the traders of Sheba, Ashur, and Chilmad traded with you. They traded with you in choice garments, in clothes of blue, and embroidered work, and in carpets of many colors, and tightly wound cords, which were among your merchandise. All right, sounds like a pretty nice place to shop, doesn't it? And you might think now back to Revelation 18 briefly. Remember that list? Many of the same things in both lists. Not surprising, because these are pretty much a catalog of what consisted of basic goods and luxury items of the day. The point, though, is the same. The the intensity of the list, the the fact that, that God takes the time to describe so much of it, just reflects how rich the place was. And in all these various groups, you see people trading with Tyre. But the group names themselves, as I said, take your mind back to Genesis 10, because you recognize these as ancient place names, ancient people names, where God confused the language. Just going down through them briefly, Tarshish, modern-day Spain, they paid for goods with silver and various metals. Javan is Greece. Tubal and Meshach, both eastern Turkey, so across the alien sea from Greece. They bought from Tyre with human slaves and bronze. All that wealth is tangible, it's durable, so that would increase the city's wealth. Then the people of Beth, Togarmah, and that's modern-day Armenia. They had mules and donkeys uh, and war horses, which... Obviously, we're valuable. That reference in verse 15 to Dedan, it's probably Rhodes and not Dedan, because Dedan is covered later, as you notice. Uh, it's just one small uh, accent on a Hebrew letter changes the names from one to the other, and the, the thinking is that perhaps the translation got changed. The Septuagint reflects it as Rhodes, not as Dedan. Anyway, they pay with ivory and ebony. Aram is Syria. They use precious stones. Judah gave them crops and food products. Damascus, wine, and wool. Vedon and Javan, those are the Greeks. Again, they paid with items that they obtained, it says, from Uzal, which is modern-day Yemen. So they got things from Yemen, and then they traded those to Tyre. Dedan, here's where Dedan is probably meant to be. This is Greece, again. They traded in leather. Arabia gave livestock. Sheba, Ramah, those are also Arabia. They gave various things, including gold. And even beyond those, Tyre traded with regions like Mesopotamia, Haran, Assyria, those are the names we see there at the end. Carpets, garments, raw materials, everything imaginable flooded into the city. All of this just serves to remind the people of the great luxury that they had because of the rest of the world. So the question is, who made this city beautiful? Could Tyre be Tyre without all those other people? Could it even exist? Right? And who placed those other people in their respective locations? Who defined their borders, including the borders of Tyre? Who gave Tyre its people? Well, Acts 17.26, we read this. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, that means the period of history in which you live, and the boundaries of their habitation. He's talking about people there, not nations. So he's saying he has 
made from one man, everyone, and then determined where everyone would live and what period of history they would live in. So God chose for you to live in this time of history in this place. And for many of us, we think, oh, thankfully, because the past sounds rough, right? But each season, I think, each period of history has its own challenges. I would argue that there have been times in the past when it would have been easier to sanctify than it may be today in some ways. But in any case, it is what it is. God's determined it. He did so, the scriptures go on to say, in verse 27 of Acts 17. He says that, so he says he did all those things, and then verse 27, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far away from each of us. So he did all of what he does. He picked the time and the place of everybody's habitation in the expectation that that would bring them to the place where they could seek for God in recognition that an omnipotent hand was responsible for those outcomes. Instead, Tyre took that blessing for granted and began to credit itself. That statement in Acts is very suggestive that God has actually determined the best place for you to live and the best period of history in which you should live so as to give you that that relationship potential. Not that his hand isn't a part of that outcome, but I'm saying there's something about the time and place that works to that purpose in God's economy. Tyre had that opportunity to some degree, and then they, they spurned it because it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is a, a challenge when you're rich that's different than the challenge when you're poor. And in what they did, they conveniently overlooked the obvious dependence that they had on the rest of the world. Their dependence on the world for their wealth argued against their view as being inherently beautiful or inherently powerful. The opposite argument was the only reasonable one to make. Thank goodness the world's out there making us beautiful. Thank good there's customers, right? You ever wonder about a merchant who treats you like dirt when you come in to buy their products? You're like, I thought, I thought I'm the reason you existed, right? But that's how mindsets change when they start to become prideful. In reality, this people group entire, they're merely the product of a merciful God who had appointed them to this end. And they were dependent on the rest of the world to support that lifestyle. And so as a result, God's going to bring this illusion that they have crashing down uh, upon them. Um, By the way, this is the chief conceit of the unbelieving world, I think, in this context, in this topic. That is, they live in this bubble of self-deceit, which allows them to sleep at night, in which they believe that they are self-made and that they have control over their life and that they are determining the outcomes of their life and that they know how to plan to get what they want and it's all in the matter of how they get there that they can have what they want. You know, there's this sense of self-control. It is a self-deceit that allows them to live in a comfortable mindset and yet, as we said earlier, it's so fragile. At any moment, the Lord could bring it to an end at any moment. You know, at any moment you lose your job, your life, your house. I mean, there's so little really holding anything together that we take for granted. And yet the world just operates under that illusion with no thought for the next day. He brought a tire down, he can bring anyone down. All right, next time we finish this chapter and we move into chapter 28. Now I said at the end of this chapter you'll be seeing the metaphoric sinking of this great ship this trader ship that represents the city. But when we get out of that and we move into chapter 28, you get a fascinating look at two characters who stand over all of history. And I am prepared to guarantee you that it will surprise you in what you're going to learn. Even if you know what the chapter has to say, I think you might find some things I'm going to say surprising based on what I believe it says. So we'll, we'll get that next time we come back. That's your teaser. Don't move away. You'll miss out. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we do thank you, Father, for the time and the place in which you've appointed us.
It seems like the best place to us, for it's what we know. But we thank you, most of all, fathers, because you knew in your wisdom it would be the time and the place in which we would seek for you. And as you said in your word, as if we might find you groping for you, because we know in your word, Father, you found us. We thank you for for reaching out and bringing your the knowledge of yourself to us by your word and through your spirit's work in our heart. And we ask you, Father, that you would not let us see that as just a, a given, something we can take for granted, but that we would feel the, the weight of that on our shoulders, something that is not burdensome or heavy, but an honor, a privilege, something we desire to uh, reflect on carefully and uh, to revere, to show honor to in our life, in all that we say and do. Thank you, Father, for our study. Let our season with family and friends over this next two weeks be one of joy and peace. Perhaps a fruitful discussion of of you and your word and your truth of the gospel will come up, and please prepare us for that. And then bring us back, Father. We want to continue in what you've begun here and so that we might know all that you have in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.